And we find ourselves in chapter 21. And listen, this is the last time that we will read of the Apostle Paul as a free man. The rest of the chapters are dealing with him as he's been locked up or chained up, held captive. But his chains could not hold him down in terms of his witness. He became even bolder and spoke with great clarity. And we read through these next few chapters of different encounters that Paul has, mainly with the Jews, Jewish authorities, and Roman authorities. Uh, We read of him facing a mob in the temple square. We read of various conversations that he has with different Roman government um, leaders. There are repeated themes throughout these eight chapters that we read about. Um, And Luke makes clear of his, uh, with this repetition, the vehicle of repetition, of how central the gospel is to the life of Paul. Not only in living out the gospel in terms of the grace of God in his life, but also in terms of his mission in life. So these chapters constitute also a promise that uh, was given to Paul at the time of his conversion. And this is in Acts 9, and it says this. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. And so we see the fulfillment of that in these chapters. Even though captive, I think that these are Paul's best moments as an apostle. Constantly under accusation. Continually put under the microscope. And yet he continues to point to the resurrected Christ. I think if we were to list the most unpleasant things we have to go through, being accused of something that is not true is near the top of the list. And yet here's Paul constantly, like for five years between now and the end of the book, and he is just continuing to be faithful, talking about God's grace. It's really a great example. So I hope that you're inspired by it. Let's all stand as we take a look at Acts 21. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do, therefore, what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. 
But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. So let me ask you a question here. When a person becomes a Christian, must they eliminate their entire religious past? Let's say they had a religious past that was not particularly Christian. Do they have to forego all the practices from that past? Can some practices, even though not specifically under a Christian system, be practiced within our new life in Christ. These are the kinds of things that are addressed in Acts 21. You know, some of you may have grown up, let's say, genuflecting, kneeling before you get to an aisle. I remember when my wife, Janet, first came to Christ. She grew up in a system in which they did that. And I remember when she came to our church, she did that. And I'm like, you know, you don't have to do that. I suppose if you want, you know, no big deal, but you don't have to. How about when you take communion or baptism that has a much different meaning within a prior system, and then you come to Christ, do you not take, you know, not get baptized or not take communion anymore because it, you know, you don't want to associate it with your past? Do you do that? Or let's flip the scenario. Let's say that you are ministering in an Islamic country. Is it okay to put on Muslim clothing? Is it okay to fast to recognize Islamic religious festivals? Is it okay to practice the dietary laws in respect of your Muslim friends? Now, You practice such things in your head, in your heart. These are not theological compromises, but it's a Christian recognizing cultural religious customs out of respect for your Muslim friends. Well, let's read our passage and see if we can't gain some understanding in in this regard. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us into the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Now, if we look at our map here, we can see the trek that Paul made. He went to a lot of different cities, and we've covered much of that in our prior sessions in Acts. And he gets here, passes Cyprus, And here's Jerusalem. It's probably hard to read from where you're at. Here's Caesarea. So he's right on the last leg now of this journey. And he has had a very strong desire to return to Jerusalem. In fact, God told him that's where he wanted him. So, I mean, he's very intent. Even though he knew, just like Jesus, going to Jerusalem is going to be trouble. Going to Jerusalem is going to be persecution, and he did it anyway. It tells us that Paul and his friends basically have packed up, and they have taken some extra travelers. They stayed with this man named Nason, who was a 
an early believer, one of the first believers after the resurrection of Christ. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present after greeting them. He related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry, and when they heard it, they glorified God. So the crew arrives in Jerusalem, and they are received with great gladness and joy. And this first full day, Paul is with James, who's the leader of the Jerusalem church, and then there are other elders or other leaders of the church besides James that are there. And Paul proceeds to share stories. And actually, it says he related one by one the things that God had done. This had to be a very long meeting and praise time as he's going through the various stories of how God had used him. Now, I want you to notice what does not take place. What does not take place is James saying, well, you know, God used me too. I mean, I remember when there's none of that. It says that they were, they were gladly, you know, rejoicing in what Paul had shared. And when they heard it, they glorified God. That was the response of James and all the leaders. And I thought as I read that, it's too often the case that Ministers have this sense of competition against one another instead of realizing you are in the same kingdom serving the same king. Now, this diff should not be too difficult for us to realize this. Any of you who have been in the business world, you know that you know, competition is a big deal. People you know, want to be recognized, rewarded. It's really naive of us to think that in the religious realm, it's going to be different the unwillingness to work together, to encourage one another, to truly support one another is far too common. Should be the rule rather than the exception, should it not? That when success occurs in another church or ministry, we can rejoice as well, right? I mean, the scene of the disciples as they're there at the Last Supper, worrying about who's gonna be greatest in the kingdom tips us off that that's gonna be a common temptation when you are ministering, self-promotion, competition. I read this story. Billionaire Robert Smith gave the commencement address at Morehouse College last year. In the speech, he communicated to all the graduating class that he and his family would cover all of their school debt. Nice. As you can imagine, you know, they were elated. But other people heard of this and were writing letters of why they were not pleased that that was taking place. Why? Because they had saved and sacrificed and they expressed resentment that they were not a part of this gift giving. I mean, instead of being happy, Instead of grabbing a hold of the fact that they're being responsible and, you know, saving and, and trying to pay off their debt, they felt left out that they were not a part of this grace gift of immediate paid tuition. Resentment and jealousy is not only unreasonable, it is a thief. 
because it steals from us our contentment. I want to suggest to you that serving Christ is also a gift of grace. And I know some see it as a ball and chain. They got it wrong. Some see it as only an obligation. They got it wrong. It is a gift of grace. Think of how grace has been given to us. None of us, none of us deserves to be forgiven of our sin. Yet Christ died for us and God forgave us. None of us in our own strength can give one inch to, you know, advance the kingdom of God. Yet God in his mercy gifts us that we might have an opportunity to serve and expand the kingdom of Christ. None of us deserves to be a part of the blessing of seeing others come to Christ, grow in him, suffer in joy, rejoice when we see someone healed, experience his touch, and yet we get to hear of God's work. I mean, when we hear of another ministry then thriving, seeing others come to Christ, let us rejoice that God is active and adding to his kingdom. We don't deserve to be a part of any of that. We don't deserve blessing or grace, yet we receive it generously daily from the hand of God. Now, the early Christians, I think, were able to rejoice in Paul's work because they realized that they were all a part of the same denomination. Can we not appreciate that? Yes, no, that's not why. They could rejoice because they're part of the same kingdom, serve the same king, contributing because God has gifted them. When you truly see one another and yourself as recipients of God's grace, when you hear it, you glorify God. I praise God for the work that he does and all the other churches in our area. And I've told you this before, but the larger ones, you know, you think of James River and others, John has a target on his back. Don't criticize him. Just pray for him. And pray for the other pastors in the area and the other leaders, that God would direct them, that God would use them, that God would humble them. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed they are all zealous for the law, and they've been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to their customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. So James and the elders are alerting Paul of this complaint that's being told about him by these Jews. So they have witnessed fellow Jews coming to Christ. They've seen Gentiles coming to Christ. And their complaint was Paul is not telling the Jews to concentrate more on the law. In fact, they hear them, Paul saying to disregard the law. That's what they say. They said Paul was telling the Jews you don't have to follow the law anymore. 
You know, these are the things that mark us as a people. So they resented Paul for that. Now, there is a kind of a, a political context that adds fuel to the fire here. The Jews were very anxious. Josephus, the historian during this time, described this period of time with intense Jewish nationalism and political unrest. There was one insurrection after another that challenged Roman authority, and the Romans were notorious for being heavy-handed. This special brew, what it did, it increased the Jewish animosity toward Rome, and it inflamed anti-Gentile sentiment. So with Paul being friendly to Gentiles, <laughs> the Jews were ripe for misreading, misinterpreting his message. Now, what is it Paul actually said? What is it he actually taught? And how does that differ from what they were saying he was teaching? In short, Paul encouraged Jewish Christians to remain still practicing some of these laws, Jewish laws, but Gentile converts were not subject to it, with one exception. When they were with their Jewish friends or in a Jewish context, it would do them well to follow some basic Jewish practices out of cultural sensitivity. Paul said this, to the Jews, I become as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Fit within the culture the best you can so that the gospel is not hindered. Really simple to understand. Paul made it clear that circumcision or following Jewish customs were not the vehicles for salvation. He said in Galatians, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law for the righteous shall live by faith. Now, about eight years before this episode in Acts 21, about eight years before, Paul was a part of what was called the Jerusalem Council. It's in Acts 15. Here, the church leaders meet to give instructions to Gentile Christians who are cohabitating in a Jewish context. Paul was a part of this council, and the early church did a great deal of eating together in homes as part of their church experience. So you'd have Gentile believers were in Jewish homes sometimes, and, or maybe they, the uh, Gentile would have the Jews over. And some of these Jews uh, considered some food unclean. And this would cause an unnecessary offense from the Jews if the Gentiles ate this unclean food. And so, as a, as a result, this council 
suggested requirements to make fellowship possible between the Jews and the Gentile Christians. Again, cultural sensitivity, loving your brothers and sisters enough so that they're not unnecessarily offended. It's really not too hard to understand, all right? All right, if you are going to a group of black pastors or a black church, you are not to have your Confederate flag posted on your truck and driving into the parking lot. You just don't do that. Now, I own neither, all right, a truck or a Confederate flag, nor do I desire to own the flag. But I'm just saying, you have to think through some of those things and be what? Considerate. Respectful, right? For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these uh, requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these things, you will do well. The Gentiles are to consider adjusting their behaviors so that when they share the gospel with the Jews or they're fellowshipping with Jews in the church, they're not offensive. First, abstain from things polluted by idols. They were not to participate in any idol feasts or bring home meat from the market, and that meat had been, part of it had been offered to idols in conjunction with idols. The Gentiles were also to abstain from sexual immorality. Now look, the Gentiles were considered dirty, and I mean that in a moral sense, by the Jews, because the Gentiles lived by a different code, or many times no code at all, they just did what they wanted. So when a person comes to Christ, it doesn't always mean that they've cleaned up every single area of their life. It is impossible to repent of every single sin when you come to Christ. You can't name every single one. That's an impossibility. But when you come to Christ, God may be through discipleship, reading the word, uh, teaching, you learn some things that have to come under the lordship of Christ, and that includes your sexual life to come under the lordship of Christ. So the, the Jews would have thought a person living in an immorality was not only a hypocrite, but they wouldn't listen to him if he had to say anything about the gospel. It would just shut him off. So sexual immorality, don't do it. They would have abstained from what has been strangled and from blood. The Old Testament prohibition was against eating meat with blood in it. That was practiced by the Jews, and Gentiles are encouraged to follow the same kosher-only diet when with Jews. So if Gentile believers were to ignore these instructions, what they would be doing is causing a break in the fellowship, and they would lose respect. This is not a matter of salvation. It's not even a matter of being holy before God. God doesn't really care whether you eat meat or what kind of meat, or, you know, whatever. But it's about loving your brothers and sisters who are from a different culture. Cultural sensitivity, in this case, it's not compromising when it's motivated by love, right? Respecting customs and a people's way of life. It's simply a sign of respect. So, how did the Jews become, you know, so convoluted in their description of Paul's message? I mean, Paul went out of his way to show respect 
for the Jewish customs. Though making clear that that's not the way of salvation. You know, it's been said that a rumor travels halfway around the world while the truth is still getting its pants on. The bottom line is this nationalistic, pharisaical Jewish crowd was bent on not only not believing anything that came out of the mouth of Paul, but they wanted to see him dead. Right? They prejudged him. They were unwilling to listen or even try to understand. And every once in a while, you meet people like this, don't you? I mean, they've already made their judgments. They are unwilling to talk or reason together. They want nothing to do with anyone who does not see things exactly the way they see them. And so the leaders in Acts 21 ask a rhetorical question, knowing these Jews are going to find out Paul is in town. What then is to be done? Well, verse 23, do therefore what we tell you. (laughs) We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus, all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. The vow is likely a Nazarite vow. In ancient Israel, it was customary for men to take a lifelong vow to abstain from wine or anything considered unclean and never to cut their hair, a la Samson, Judges 13. Later, the Jews kind of modified this and provided a way for a man to practice a temporary Nazarite vow, which meant that you would live as a Nazarite for a certain period of time, and at the end of that time, you would offer a series of sacrifices, you'd cut your hair, and then you could drink of wine and go into just living a normal life. So these four men were chosen, maybe it was because of their economic need, we don't know how they arrived at these four guys, but they chose them, And they were too poor to pay for the sacrifices because animal sacrifices were included with this. So it was considered an act of piety for a wealthier person to defray the expenses and participate in this vow. And that was what Paul did. He was asked to do this for these four men and he obliged. And by doing so then, he could be observed by all the Jews that he was an observer of the law. But for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, from what has been strangled and from sexual morality. So here the church leaders are again recognizing the wisdom of the council at Jerusalem. For the Gentiles to recognize being culturally sensitive when in the presence of Jews. Verse 26 tells us that Paul complied with these suggestions. So cultural sensitivity means doing things you normally would not do, doing things or prohibiting yourself from things that you have the freedom to do, but you are constraining yourself because you are in the presence of others who might find that objectionable. Then Paul took the men 
And the next day he purified himself along with them, went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. So Paul follows the prescription, ceremoniously purifies himself, pays for the sacrifices, enters the temple. He goes to great length to not be a roadblock to the gospel. Now, any of us can read ahead in the following verses and know whether this worked or not with the Jewish officials. Basically, it didn't. One lesson we learn from Paul's experience is that you can do the right thing, but things don't necessarily turn out for you. That's a hard pill to swallow. Paul humbled himself, sacrificed, loved well, spoke the truth. You would think that people would appreciate that. Instead, he is continuing to be rejected and persecuted. You know, if we expect to last in a marriage, a country, a a church, whatever. We have to eliminate the notion that when you do the right thing, everything's gonna work out. Now, you should do the right thing. You'll be rewarded in heaven for the right thing. But sometimes there are good and godly people who do the right thing, and it doesn't always turn out well, right? Many people are faithful to Christ, and they suffer for that. They suffer because of the wrongdoing of others. People will lie about you. People will will twist what you say. People will talk behind your back. And unfortunately, Christians are not exempt from these things. And as I look at the Apostle Paul, it was in the midst of this. These were his best moments because he continued to cling to the gospel power of grace and forgiveness. I mean, just think of the hundreds of episodes in his mind that he had to go over forgiving people constantly for the things that they said and did. It's either that or pay your therapist some serious cash. He continued to move ahead. He continued to stay on mission. Again, five years, Acts 21 to Acts 28. Five years of lies, persecution, chains, but it's also five years that God put Paul in these situations where he could proclaim the gospel to those who need it most. That's pretty cool, right? I mean, how else could he be in in those situations speaking before Roman authorities and these Jewish leaders? He was so sold out for the gospel I mean, that was his life mission. That, was, that, that bled through him. He was willing to go to the mat, whatever it meant to make sure that that message got out. And he lived by the gospel and the power of grace and forgiveness. What does that mean for us? Well, you know, to keep it simple, whatever circumstance we're in, we make a beeline for Christ. Whatever situation, if it's a tough situation, 
we make a beeline for Christ. Remember the gospel, remember grace and forgiveness, and I have no right for vengeance or holding bitterness in my heart because all I gotta do is just pause and reflect about the great grace that has been shown to me. Imagine if everybody around you gave you what you deserve. All the stupid things you've said. I've got volumes that could be written about my stupid stuff. And if, if I didn't have God's mercy expressed to me through others who have been merciful and graceful toward me, I couldn't bear the load. Right? So make a beeline for him today. Some of you are in tough circumstances right now. Make a beeline. You may not be chained, literally, like Paul was, but you feel chained because you're stuck in some relationships that are really, really difficult and hard. God is with you. God knows. God is giving you strength. Make a beeline for Jesus. Let's pray.